life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Max Cryer answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning later this hour. If you want to ask Max a question, feel free. Use the email form on the Weekend Variety Wireless uh, web page and the Facebook page as well. Use the messaging system or just shout out. I forward them all on to Max. His inbox is full. That's the way he likes it. Why is a shoe cleaner called Nugget? It's a fascinating story. Also the story behind nappies and a little hanky-panky as well. Next up, though, we go to the movies with James Crute, having a look at the career of Emma Thompson. She's now a dame. And previewing some of the Khan uh, features, the winners, special um, things that have appeared at Khan are coming to the New Zealand International Film Festival. See you the other side of the commercial break. Variety Wireless on Radio Live. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. James Crute, hello. Hello, Graham. How are you? Good. Emma Thompson, she's one of the most lauded actors in uh, British culture, you could say. Yes, and she's now a dame. Yes. Fabulous. Up there with the, with New Zealand choosing the top twins to be dames, I think. Yeah. And it's been a good June all round for the, uh, queenie choices, if you like. Joining Dame Bob Jones and all the others. <laughs> oh, for God's sake, Graham. Look, I think this is, I won't say it's long overdue, but yeah. I think it's, you know, it's the start of that next, genera next generation below the likes of Judy Dench, Maggie Smith, and all the, all those that we talked about the other week, actually. I yeah. Mean, uh, you know, she was part of that, initially part of that wave of British comedians, really. That's right. And it was a really, um, it was a wave of comedians that held a lot of scholarship, for want of a better word, actually. Uh, exactly. The, the Ben Elton writing. People, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they all met at Cambridge and Oxford and all that. You know, she was part of the Footlight Society, as they call it. I guess it was a bit like, uh, what was it, the Targa University Sextet and things like that. They, went, all, of course, all went on to be singers rather than comedians. That's but, right, yeah. Um, but, you know, there's that kind of tradition. And you think of the likes of Fry, Laurie, Kenneth Branner on the uh, more serious side. But And, know, and, be the and behind the scenes, you've got to say Ben Elton. You do, you do. And, of course, one of uh, Emma Thompson's brilliant early roles was, of course, appearing on The Young One. In the and university challenge scene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, over the years, she's just really stood out with her ability to play both serious and frivolous roles. Mm. I think that's been kind of the key. I mean, she very much uh, started out... Well, well, I mean, she started, of course, being kind of linked to Kenneth Branagh, who, of course, was her partner at the time. Um, but, you know, you think of things like that 
quite brilliant miniseries, Fortunes of War. I don't know if you remember that no. from the late 80s. It was, it, it was well received. It was all about Guy Pringle, and it was that whole uh, sort of... Um, uh, things around spies uh, during World War Two, mm. quite quite brilliant series, but uh, you know, and then she went on to things like Henry V. But of course, one one role that that uh, I know a lot of Kiwis particularly love was a movie called The Tall Guy, where she played a nurse opposite Jeff Goldblum. That has uh, one of the most hilarious sex scenes ever involving spilled cartons of milk and assorted other things. It's just hilarious. <laughs> okay. I've never seen it. Oh, it's quite brilliant. I, I definitely encourage you to check it out. Okay. Um, she also became, uh, I guess in the 90s, it was kind of her merchant ivory uh, links that really pushed her to the forefront, I guess, particularly of American sensibilities. I mean, she was in Howard's End. Mm. She was in Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing. She was in The Remains of the Day, opposite Anthony Hopkins. The, uh, same year, she played a journalist in that great Daniel Day-Lewis movie, In the Name of the Father. Mm. Um, but, you know, uh, then she, of course, was nominated. I can't remember if she won an Oscar as well for her adaptation, which she co-wrote, of Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. She played Eleanor Dashwood as well. But, you know, again, while she's making all those serious projects, she also was doing some brilliant comedies. I mean, she was the doctor who uh, helped uh, create um, the twins of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. <laughs> oh, really? Yep. Fabulous. Um, she was also a key character in that uh, Bill Clinton, do we call it a spoof, a parody, Primary Colours, mm -hmm. in the late 90s with uh, good old uh, Travolta. Um, then, of course, you think of things like Love Actually, where she played that wonderful, um, you know, vignette within it opposite Alan Rickman, who, of course, was one of her great friends as well. Um, you know, she and, and then she sort of reinvented herself after that. She played... Uh, uh, Professor Trelawney in the Harry, later Harry Potter films, and she was brilliant at that. She created, uh, helped help bring to life a, a very cool character called Nanny McPhee, who was sort of Mary Poppins for a new generation. Mm. She uh, looks like a BAFTA. Has she won <laughs> how many? It's a good question, actually. Yeah. Um, she's won two Oscars. Oh. So, I mean, that's pretty impressive, you'd have to say. Yeah. Um, BAFTA, strangely enough, uh, I think three BAFTAs in total. Okay. So, so uh, one for Sense and Sensibility uh, uh, for the acting side, actually, there. Uh, one for Howard's End, uh, which, is, incidentally, has uh, just been remade as a TV series, which is coming shortly. Mm -hmm. And she also won a uh, TV award a bit earlier for Fortunes Award, which I talked about. Mm. Um, there's a film coming later this year that I was lucky enough to see at Toronto last year called The Children Act, where she plays a judge who's faced with a conundrum uh, of a young man who's uh, Jehovah's Witness and his parents won't allow him to have a blood transfusion. And so, you know, she has to sort of be his advocate. Uh, and, and that is a, a powerful story, and she's quite brilliant in it. Oh, OK. Uh, yeah, oh, the Jehovah's, they're really interesting when you look into them. I've been doing that a little bit, just as a hobby on the side. And she also has a wee Kiwi connection as well. What? You know, you might have heard of a TV series, which has mainly been a web series, and it's now, I think it's screening on Lightbox now, called High Road. Oh, yeah? Um, yep. Well, she uh, appears in this 
second or third series uh, as uh, Terry Huffer's sister. So um, Mark Mitchinson, who's the main character, this kind of washed-up rock star who's shifted to New Zealand, he goes back and catches up with his sister, who's played by Emma Thompson, a kind of clever piece of casting. I think she's a high-end actor, uh, we all know that, but she's retained the love of a belly laugh from her student days, basically. Exactly. I think that's the key to her. She's got that wicked sense of humour that, that I think is a... I think it's a uniquely kind of British actress trait, really, isn't it? I think there are certain... I think Kate Winslet is... She feels like Kate Winslet's older sister sort of thing. And, and there would be others further down the line as well. But, you know, she comes from that uh, Dawn French, Jennifer Saunders yep. kind of era, but has a certain extra sort of dimension in terms of her dramatic skills. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm just speaking of American actresses the, with that sense of humour. I suppose Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Elaine, or The Veep, yeah, whatever you like. I, I yeah. think so, and I think I think Meryl could do it, but she's kind of too wrapped up in, in being, you know, in, in playing these kind of more serious roles. Yeah, she needs to be in something the equivalent of flying high now. To, to, <laughs> To um, actually, you know, break that mould. I look at Meryl Streep and I want to cry. <laughs> so true. Pardon so me. True. Pardon me, fans of Meryl Streep. We know she's great. Yeah. Okay, Emma Thompson. And um, oh, unsurprisingly, strong advocate for human rights, environmentalism. She, she is a champagne socialist. Yeah, oh, oh, definitely. Look, you know, and, and the thing is that she can uh, be very articulate about uh, these kind of things as well, very yeah. erudite, and, you know, she is a kind of UN rights champion and that sort of thing, you know. It, she, she just has that power about her, but, but she knows what she's doing. You don't read many kind of tawdry tabloid headlines about her either. Yeah, and you don't see her in endorsing um, hokum or woo uh, like, you know, some of them do as well. She's got a head on her shoulders. Yeah, exactly. I'm talking Gwyneth Paltrow, Goop and all that sort of <laughs> stupid stuff. Yeah. 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 Okay, she's an atheist she, and a sceptic. She skeptic. was a British actress, I think. I think she wanted to be one. Yeah. She's a sceptic, I think. Yes. All right. We've had an, oh, anything else you wanted to say about Dame Emma? No, just what a wonderful actress she is, really. Yeah. Well, I think instead of dames, we're trying to get this to be instigated. Instead of the sir or dame in front of the name, we put the between the first name and the last name. It sounds even better. Emma the Thompson. <laughs> it's very uh, Scandinavian or Norse, isn't it? Oh, is it? Eric, Eric the Red. Yeah, or well, Alfred know, the Great. Yeah, well, true. Yeah, you also get that Eastern European thing, don't you? Or well, the Greek. It's yeah. a red, the unready. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's horrible. Okay, that's Emma the Thompson, and we've had an announcement for the New Zealand International Film Festival on films coming over from Cannes. The uh, kickoff and announcement of the full program is happening on Monday. Uh, I'm going to go along and schmooze and try and uh, yoink some interviews. Uh, but the announcements from Cannes, should we be excited? I think we should. I think, look, they're just proving year on year that the New Zealand Film Festival know exactly what they're doing and getting us the latest movies. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, what is it? Something like 30, which is a pretty impressive lineup, really. Mm. Um, you know, with, with the way things are now, um, it, 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 it almost behooves them, if you like, to, 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 to get these ones from Cannes to, to make it as an up-to-date uh, festival as possible. Oh, it's know? prestige and good, yeah. Yeah. 
That's right. And, and I mean, in, in a lot of cases, it'll be your sort of one opportunity to see some of them. But, I mean, you know, uh, in particular, the Palm Door winner this year, uh, Shoplifters, is by a terrific director called uh, Korirada Hirokazu. Um, he has uh, done films like I Wish, uh, which just in the last few years, he's made these terrific family uh, dramas. There was one about three sisters, and I'm sure it was called something like Three Sisters, but I can't remember the name exactly. Yeah. But he just—he's kind of the Ozu uh, of of this generation. He just has this way of bringing to life these family dramas with sort of, you know, as as I think Bill Gosden describes it, a sort of joyous naturalism and sad wisdom. Um, you know, it's just, they're just beautifully shot, they're just well acted, and they just, they tell great human stories, that's the thing. They're not shrouded in any kind of artifice at all. You know, it's, it's just that great drama that doesn't require... Uh, hysterical uh, music behind it or, you know... Things uh, going bang. Attention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're just great. Uh, okay. I, I must admit, Actually, yeah. no, I'm going to chip in here. I Last night, just watching the telly, and you've got the uh, advertisements are coming on, and good God, stop going bang. It, <laughs> it's, it's as if everything needs to. It's ridiculous. I think. I mean, the, the promos for mo movies. I mean, not ads for carpet cleaning. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, and and people are getting a bit. You know, the latest Jurassic World thing has kind of jumped the shark or jumped the dinosaur, <laughs> if you like, Aliosaur or whatever, if you want to call it. Yeah, just lots of. Yeah, exactly. But the problem, the problem is with television now is you get everything. You get bangs, but it also gets drowned out by somebody's uh, take on what what a score should be. Oh yeah. So, sort of like, so jump now is the cue from the uh, heavy string or something like that. Okay. Uh, I'm looking forward to Cold War. I don't know much about it other than what it says on the packet. This is from Khan because it won Best Director Award. Uh, Pavlikovsky. Um, it's about 1950s music, uh, 1950s Europe, pardon, pardon me, um, just two musicians caught between East and West, uh, it's, I don't know, it just, it, it piques my interest actually, if uh, it, if it got best director, you know? Yeah, 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 there's a couple that I'm particularly looking forward to, Gaspar Noe, who is the, uh, the French enfant terrible, I guess he's the equivalent of Lars von Trier, but from France, he's actually from Argentina originally, um, and uh, his latest is called Climax. He's a bit of a provocateur. Uh, there was a movie made about 15 years ago now called Irreversible that caused all sorts of mayhem here mm. with people wanting to ban this th sick thing. Um, it was an amazing film. It was a film that was told backwards, uh, which made it even more disturbing in a way, if that was possible. But this one has certainly polarised people so far. Also one uh, that I would thoroughly recommend, and we'll talk more about the film festival over the next month, that's for sure, is a film called The Guilty which is a Danish film set entirely in a, an emergency call centre uh, and it's focused on one one guy, essentially, uh, and the phone calls he takes and this mystery and uh, thriller, you know, all, oh, that's, all set in a single room. What a good idea. Oh, yeah, I liked it. Yeah. I liked it a lot. Yeah, it could even be Hitchcock. 
Yeah. Um, okay, it's the 50th anniversary of the New Zealand International Festival Film Festival too. Might rope Bill Gosden in for a chat about highlights over the last 50 years. Absolutely, yes, you Aucklanders celebrating the 50th year of that. It's uh, it's pretty amazing, and and uh, there's uh, as as will be revealed from Monday, the, uh, they've got a fairly extensive lineup of some old classics they've brought back. Oh, lovely! And it's always good to get that program in your hand and oh yeah, nothing better and see the pages curl. As You've um, and fray at the end, exactly. Okay, uh, coming up later on this evening, uh, in the next hour, I'm speaking with Katie Clare, she's the director of that film Kangaroo. Now, you spoke about it a couple of weeks ago, and I was fascinated. I managed to get myself a sneaky screener before interviewing the director. Um, yeah, look, it is it is a, a fascinating look at uh, what well, yeah, another dirty Australian secret, isn't it? <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah, um, they didn't use this though. <laughs> it's about the slaughter of kangaroos. I have some questions about it though. I'm afraid that do you think they overplayed their hand a bit, sort of amplifying the the gore and the horror and things like yeah, that? And, because if it it's is, found out to be wrong at all. It's a dreadful own goal. Yeah, look, it is interesting. Look, they, I guess they found a property where there was some really uh, awful shenanigans taking place because of the way the law works. They use uh, law in inverted commas. And they breathlessly uh, accept testimony of some people. I went, mm, really? You know, the, the woman on the farm saying, I've had death threats. You know, they're pointing the gun at me. Uh, I got the feeling she was rather paranoid about everything. Look, I think I think the thing that's more disturbing is the lack of science yes. around the numbers. I yes. mean, that's incredible. I mean, you as as a, uh, I wouldn't describe you as an eco-warrior, but a man who's interested in the environment and conservation and that kind of thing. Yeah. The lack of knowledge and the whole state system, you know, it's like the state of origin, mate against mate, state against state in yeah. terms of statistics. Yeah, exactly. I mean, jeepers, thank goodness we're not divided into territories in the same way that Australia is because it's just an unholy mess. They've got no idea how many roos they've got. I mean... You know, it, it is, as, as I think we spoke about the other week, it's really hard to have a New Zealand comparison to this. I mean, they almost treat it like a rabbit, but it's also their national icon. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> that That's the um, dissonance in the, in the mind, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it, it doesn't quite fit. Um, and, all the, and you can't introduce a disease to that population because just about all the other uh, marsupials have got various diseases yeah. <laughs> and problems, whether it's facial or eczema or whatever, or chlamydia. So yeah. where do they go? It's it's a difficult watch. Um, I think it's really interesting, though, in many ways. I hope they haven't overplayed their hand or, you know, mission shift because uh, the subject itself, for what it is, is, is well worth uh, um, the movie Look, that it microcosm is. microcosm of Australia's attitudes towards all things and its tortured politics. Yeah, yeah. It's really strange, isn't it, that it is the kangaroo started off being known as a pest, and it hasn't been able to jump out of that pen despite being a very good jumper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look, I, you know, we can understand that in some places they are a, an immense hazard, you know, because they end up on the roads. Oh, and Bathurst. 
That's right. <laughs> All right. Here's a little sample uh, of, of the archives. Good, isn't it? The archive that uh, the director oh, managed the to get. Stuff from the 60s, from the ABC and other things. Oh, yeah. yeah, tremendous. And the place of the kangaroo in Australian culture. There's nothing like advertising to nail it. James, <laughs> thanks very much. Be listening to the director in the next hour of Kangaroo. Australia, what's your favourite sport? Football. Snack. Pie. Animal. Kangaroo. And what's your favourite car, Australia? Holden. Let me see, that's football, meat pies, kangaroos and holding cars, huh? We love football, meat pies, kangaroos and holding cars. Football, meat pies. The kangaroos are wonderful, fuzzy, natural parts of our environment. They're delightful, they're maternal, caring with their joeys, and they're also a pest that should be eliminated wholesale. The Weekend Variety. Wireless. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of... Here he is, Max Cryer. Yes, here I am. <laughs> Lovely to see you again, sir. You've noticed. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, I can... I've grown accustomed to his face. Oh, As Rex good. Harrison said, except replacing, replacing his with her and... Um, what is it, My Fair Lady? Yes, indeed. Yes. It's the finale... It's amazing how Rex Harrison is just so engaging in a musical and he can't sing a note. No, he can't. I mean, he invented Streckgesang. And, and there was one number in the show that he couldn't do at all. He invented what? Sprechgesang is German for speak singing. Ah. And he, there was one number he couldn't do unless the clarinet played a little phrase before, which actually wasn't in the, in the score. Mm. But if the clarinet didn't play this little phrase, he didn't know when to begin. Ah! Because <laughs> he can't count. Right, can't count, practically tone deaf, or and, at least can't sing at all. never, ever seen a conductor face mm. to face. Like, he'd seen them you know, sitting in the audience, but he'd never stood on a stage and looked down and taken cues from a conductor, which any musical actor has to do all the time. Yeah, all the time. I find, anyway, there's something very likeable about Rick, about Rick Harrison's performances. Yeah, well, my friend Mary O'Brien, who's now living back in Auckland, she toured with him for two years, and she had nothing but the highest praise for his company. Oh, thank goodness for that. That's wonderful in this current climate. Okay, uh, to our word of the week before we get to answering your questions about words and phrases from the English language. The word nurse in relation, I suppose, reflection upon, at least inspired by the industrial relations this week. Well, uh, I'd question inspired. I, I chose it because it is, in, it is in the news this week, nurse. Now, the origin of the word nurse in English relates to the concept of nourishing, starting with care and attention babies and young children and then up to and including adults with a disability and illness recovering from severe necessary medical treatment. Now until the 1500s that person taking care of someone was referred to in English as a nourish, nourishing a baby or a child or an adult needing care. The English word nourish had drifted over from the old French word nourish which itself descended from the uh, old friend Latin, nutria, nutria. That was a person who nourishes in England, and by the late years of the 1500s, these Latin and French originators had net settled into English and into the version we use today, nurse, which in general referred to the person who takes care of the sick 
And that noun eventually branched out into being a verb as well, which doesn't always happen. In, in frameworks such as she was nursing before she married and then she went back to nurse when the hospital was in need of staff. Oh. So being a nurse, she was also going to nurse in the hospital. That's not very usual. But um, I, always, I always feel amused when I'm answering one of these questions and it almost invariably goes back to Latin, to Latin nutritia, hmm. a person who nourishes. Yeah, and I suppose no prizes for guessing nutritia has so many other relatives today that sound very familiar, nutrition, uh, nutrient. All those yes, sort of I didn't go into the relatives, hmm. um, but I, I suspect you're right. All right. <coughs> if you want to ask Max a question along these lines, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Uh, there's... It's obvious there, really. You can email, or if you go to the uh, Facebook page, leave a message or even a comment. I don't mind. I grab them and forward them on to Max. And uh, you, how's the inbox, Max? It should be quite good from my recollection of passing yes. on questions. Yes, oh, yes, yes. We're not, uh, we're, everything's welcome, but we're not starving. Okay. Why is a shoe cleaner, somebody asked, gosh, that was just this week, I think, um, why is a shoe cleaner called Nugget? Well, the listener was polishing his daughter's shoes and she looked at the tin and said, why is it called Nugget? Now, this is one of those word answers where there is a story, but there are also three mysteries. <laughs> to begin with, in the 1600s and 1700s, there was a very old English word, Nug, and Nug meant a lump. That's all, just a lump. During the 1800s, mystery number one happened. When the old word nug, without any known reason or explanation, it became slightly longer and turned into nugget. But it still meant exactly the same thing, a small lump. Now that word became well known when it was used by miners to describe a small lump of gold, a nugget. And it's still used to this day to describe little lumps of cooked, cooked food such as chicken nuggets mm. or to describe a small piece of advice a nugget of wisdom but in the 1800s there was not the same consciousness of having clean polished shoes and boots as we're used to now so when an enterprising firm started making wax mixed pastes for cleaning shoes and boots and boys set themselves up in the streets with a seat in a box offering for a small fee to use this paste on shoes of passers-by, the concept of having clean, shiny shoes and boots became established, and it remains to this day. Nobody cared before that. They just it's the thing on your feet. It's bound to get dirty in the streets of London. Well, I wouldn't say nobody cares, but if you were rich, you could sort of have shoes made of satin, or, and when they got scruffed, you just got a new pair. Oh. Um, so it just wasn't as common as it is now. We regard it as an essential point of grooming. To have oh, right. Shoes which are at least clean, if not shiny. Oh, Walter Raleigh took his jacket off and put it over a puddle so Queen Elizabeth didn't have to get her sh satin shoes Well, they dirty. would have been silk. Uh, probably. <laughs> now, in... In 1896, this is the crucial bit, in 1896, a firm called Imperial Enamel was set up in Birmingham and it manufactured and distributed shoe cleaning mixtures in small round tins. By the 1900s, that company was having a huge success and the company established deliveries and then factories in Dublin, South Africa, Australia, Mexico to sell the product in America. Now, here's the good bit. 
Every tin of boot and shoe polish from that company had the brand name Nugget. Why? Because on its tin there was a picture of a glittering gold nugget. Really? Really. And that use of a gold nugget and the name was registered as a trademark in 1919. So mystery number two is that nobody knows exactly why they chose that word or the picture of the glittering gold lump, but it worked like a charm and theoretically probably was chosen in hope that customers would perceive shoe and boot cleaning substance being as precious as gold. Mm. Well, the product was very widely sold in several major countries and it's undoubtedly the reason why shoe cleaner became associated with the word nugget. Now, that could have been the end of the story, but there was a Scottish man living in Australia, William Ramsey, in association with Hamilton McKellen, and in 1904, he began making boot polish in a small factory in Melbourne. Mr. Ramsey was married to a woman who was born in Omeroo, and as a gesture to her and the novelty value of a kiwi, he named his shoe polish after the kiwi. This was a huge success, and it became available internationally. Eventually, it surpassed the Imperial Enamel Company, and it also did a great deal to establish around the world a consciousness of what a kiwi was and where it came from. Strangely, kiwi boot and shoe polish initially wasn't allowed to use the name in New Zealand because the word kiwi had already, already been registered by a chemical firm in New Zealand as their trademark. And at that time, the law didn't allow another product with the same name. So for many years, New Zealanders bought the other brand, Nugget, with the picture of the gold nugget on each tin. And the word nugget became firmly embedded in New Zealand vocabulary, meaning shoe cleaner. Nevertheless, the Australian-made kiwi polish became a, a big success elsewhere and undoubtedly helped the image of a kiwi towards becoming acknowledged as the international symbol of an individual country, even though the product was actually made in Australia. Well, the listener might have some trouble telling all this to his daughter, but the shortest version is, 122 years ago, a firm in England began making boot and shoe polish, and to convey how precious this was to your appearance, they put a picture of nugget of gold on every tin and called the product Nugget. And through the following hundred years, that word became firmly associated with shoe cleaner, including when the shoe cleaner was from a different brand, and sometimes the cleaners were white. They had white nugget. So the word Nugget wasn't always brown and black. So there are three mysteries. Nobody knows how the word Nug was stretched into Nugget, meaning a lump. Mystery number two, solution, the word nugget became associated with shoe cleaner because of this company selling shoe cleaner called Nugget with a picture of a nugget on the tin. Mystery number three, the listener didn't actually ask this, but I found it intriguing. The word nugget, meaning lump of gold, is and always was a noun, a nugget. But somewhere, sometime, you'd hear someone saying, I nugget my shoes once a week. Yeah. So that over the time, nugget has become a verb. Right. There's a distinct parallel, isn't there, with something like Hoover, which was a brand name. And now it wouldn't be bizarre for someone to say, I bought a new Hoover. Oh, what brand? Electrolux. Because ah. uh, Hoover was a brand and yes, then it became yeah. a verb yes. and, and a noun. Yeah. Well, I think something's happening before our very eyes in Auckland where there is a, a conveyance company called Uber. 
Oh. And that is Uber. But you hear people say, I Ubered to the city today, or I yeah. Ubered. Uber it. <laughs> Uber it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fabulous. Um, uh, may I propose, I mean, it's a, it's a mystery, um, and of course I take your word for it, Max, that Nug turned into Nugget, but... Uh, I'm wondering, is there a possibility that it could be just a, that classic diminutive form, like a case, no, a small case is a cassette, you know? Uh, I know you're putting it the wrong way around. Um, um, the, the word was nug for many, 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 many years. Yeah. It mysteriously lengthened into nugget. It wasn't the other way around. No, no, no. A, diminu a, a, a lump, maybe a really small lump is a nugget. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Uh, well, it's an interesting theory. I see no backup for it at all. No, <laughs> no but I thought of it. So if I, have a, if I think something, I'm bound to say it. What was intriguing and is relevant to God, the story... God, you're good tonight, Max. ...is that Kempthorne Prosser in Dunedin had registered the, the name Kiwi for a veterinary medicine that they manufactured. So when... Mr. Australia brought his kiwi nugget to New Zealand. Yeah. He was told he wasn't allowed to use that name. Ah. So for something like 20 years, the other brand of nugget, and that's, I think, the answer to the listener's question, that yeah. the, it was the only one available, was the one with the gold um, mm. nugget on the top. Yeah. And then the kiwi... Prestige marketing, labelling. I think, I think the kiwi called McCosh, um, came in around about the 1920s, but that was almost 20 years after nugget had been sold in New Zealand. I bet everybody does this. You get a new tin of nugget. Yes. And you open it up with that distinct, yes. I think almost unique opening yes, twist. Yes, yes, and yes. it prizes the top open. You smell it. It's don't a you? clever it, design. It is a clever design, but when you open a new thing of nugget, yeah. you smell it, don't you? Yes. And you must have two rags, one to put it on and the other to polish it off. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, what a great story. Uh, we'll take a short break. I said short there for marketing reasons because I think they're all exactly the same length uh, after the commercial break. Max Cryer answering more of your questions. We address diapers, hanky-panky, shepherd's delight and the phrase associated with the red sky. And if we can, we'll get to a jot. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Max Cryer answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning, and a brand name in the last segment that became uh, a noun and a verb, nugget. We've yes. got uh, a, a nice picture of um, that very brand, and you can see the gold nugget in yes. there. That's the answer to the original question. It's oh. called nugget because they used a yeah. picture of a glittering gold nugget, and, and I did find a picture of it, and uh, I think Graham's going to show it to the world. Oh. Dark brown, tan, boot polish, and leather preservative. Marvellous. Weren't labels great back then? And it's nice to that they haven't really changed. Well, they've become... I think the word is sophisticated, which usually means tangled round with... Mm. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> Mucked about. Yes. <laughs> OK. Uh, answering your questions now. Somebody has asked either on Facebook or email... Nappies. We say nappies. Americans say diapers. <laughs> Why? Well, the word diaper is a weird one because it has a place in mathematical terminology and it's also widely used to name something quite different, such as babies' nappies. It's tricky, but I'll give it my best shot. The English word diaper comes from the ancient aspros of dear aspros. That means 
Aspros means white, hence the word aspro, and dia aspros means through whiteness. Now, during the 1400s, that word was used to describe a type of white fabric, which was characterized by being woven. It was woven with a pattern that showed sort of diamond shapes all over the fabric. And apparently in the 1600s, the term diaper began to be applied also to a geometric design in the weave of the fabric. This is very, that bit's confusing, so forget that bit, though it's true. Now, eventually, mathematicians began to use the term to describe any geometric shape repeated to fit into a prescribed space. So, which came first, the baby's nappy or the geometric description? Well, the word diaper, meaning a nappy, is obviously descended from the original name of the centuries-old cloth called diaspros. So, curiously enough, according to the Oxford Dictionary, the white cloth with its repeated pattern was established before the mathematicians got involved, and so the white weave fabric, which had geometric noticeable patterns, was shortened to didi, which always strikes me as a demonstration of faith that Americans call a baby's nappy by a name which means pure white. <laughs> which only lasts a certain amount of time, doesn't it? Well, that's what diaper actually means. Right. I mean, dear Aspen, right. it means through whiteness. Right, okay. Do you delve into nappy or just taking that for um, given? Nappies. Nappies, what about them? Were you going to do the origin of nappies? I've just done nappies. I mean, then the question was, why do they say diapers instead of nappies? Oh, yep, okay, that's fine. Well, we say nappies because it's short for napkin. Right. Which is another square of white fabric. Right, right. Two different things. Okay. Uh, the origin now of... Hanky Panky. It's musical. <laughs> yes. Well, remember what I always say? That mm. which lasts, lasts if it's got the rhythm. Yeah. Hanky Panky. Hanky Panky, trickery, double dealing, or sexual or legally dubious behaviour, considered improper, but not seriously so. Well, the term's been in use since at least the mid-1800s, and in the sense of there being dubious trickery, it can be found in 1841. Here's a quote. Quote, only a little hanky-panky, my lud. The people likes it. They loves to be cheated before their faces. One, two, three, presto, be gone. As pretty a trick as putting a piece of money in your eye and then taking it out of your elbow. Now the When was that? When was that? Pardon me, it passed me by. 1841. 1841. So There'll be a test at the end of this, listeners. That's why... <laughs> You'll be taking it if you're not careful. <laughs> now, the second meaning, sexual activity or dalliance, especially of a surreptitious nature, can be found much later in 1939. Quote, I am a respectable, and I mean to keep respectable, no hanky-panky. End of quote. Now... There is one theory that hanky-panky is simply a made-up term which sounds intriguing, like, you know, the bee's knees. But there are scholars who can date it back to Latin, as in the Roman Catholic Mass. The consecration section of the Mass contains the word hoch es corpus, this the body. And when old-time magicians wanted to pronounce a so-called magic spell before they carried off a conjuring trick, they recited a fake magic spell in Latin, which was actually this segment of the Latin prayer from the Mass, transformed into a fake. Hoch est corpus became hocus pocus, which came to mean trickery and something which seems like magic but is actually false. Huh? Well, the term hocus pocus remained in English, and that old meaning hasn't changed, but it's also developed two other things. Hocus pocus 
is related to the word hoax, which means a joke based on something false. And another version which arose out of Hocus Pocus is Hanky Panky, which indicates trickery of some kind, and including surreptitious sexual activity. But it's the English-speaking wish to have things sound like English rather than anything else. So right. Hocus Pocus became Hanky Panky. So from the distance, from the Latin mass, hoch est corpus, is quite considerable, but is related to the two English terms, hanky-panky and hoax. And that is what I am told is the origin of those two words. I find it quite appealing and amusing how uh, that hoc est corpus from the Latin, uh, the, the Catholic um, mass, whatever it is, uh, turned into hocus-pocus. I wonder what the Pope thought of that. Well, he might not have heard the term hanky-panky. No, hocus-pocus. Although perhaps it's recently he has. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all hocus-pocus. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, a famous saying, probably because it rhymes, a red sky at night is the shepherd's delight. From whence? Is that the question? Yes, where does the saying come from? Well, um... The whole saying is red sky at night is the shepherd's delight, red sky in morning is the shepherd's warning. Well, yes, it's very old and it's not quite original because it's been refised to get the rhythm mm. because the original doesn't have rhythm. Uh, this, come, this sometimes has shepherds in it and it sometimes has sailors in it. Though the original, the best known version, doesn't mention any shepherds or sailors. The most famous speaker of those words was Jesus. It's in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, and he says it to the Pharisees, quote, When it is evening, ye say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. End of quote. Now, the modern explanation of this seems to assert that the saying is basically correct. Humidity in the forming raindrops scatter the short wavelength of blue light so that only the long wavelength of red light reaches the observer. And the report seems to indicate that Jesus was reminding the Pharisees about something they already knew, because his quote includes the words, ye say, oh, which, right. which indicates that it was something they said amongst themselves. So there was a possibility that Jesus was quoting a Jewish observational proverb in Israel, which dated much further back than that incident. And, and he would have been speaking it in Aramaic, which he spoke, so whatever, the, has, whatever he said has gone through something like four translations before it was available in English. But in contemporary common usage, the usual form is that found in the King James translation of the book of Matthew. Oh. Now, I mentioned earlier today, the subject of shoe polish did intrigue me, I admit. I mentioned earlier that the Australian shoe polish kiwi initially wasn't allowed to be sold in New Zealand. And today's date is the anniversary of why. On June the 23rd, 1892, the Dunedin Medicine and Drug Company of Kempthorne Prosser registered the brand name Kiwi for one of its medicines for veterinary use. They had been using the Kiwi image for four years and they made it official 126 years ago today. This prevented the sale of Australian-made Kiwi shoe polish in New Zealand because the Kiwi was already a registered brand name here. In 1922, a court case between Kiwi Polish and Kempthorne Prosser resulted in Kiwi Polish being allowed in New Zealand, where it was normally referred to as Nugget. 
Lovely. That, yeah, that nugget story is just tremendous, Max. Amar- yes, I, it, took me, it, it took me a whole day and a half, but I was intrigued. Mm. And it was such a pleasant letter, you know, mm. I was cleaning my daughter's shoes and mm. she said... Lovely. You can actually write a letter to Max and ask a question as well along uh, with the more ubiquitous these days, uh, email or Facebook. You go to the Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page or the uh, web page and it should be obvious. Um, another singer, in inverted commas, has been described as a bit of a talky singer, uh, is a character by the name of Howard Devoto. He's the leader of a band called Magazine, or at least was, and we're featuring their first release from 1978. I think it's a cracker, one of the best things to come out of 1978. Uh, it's called Real Life. But Magazine, oh, they went on to do some other cracking albums as well. And some beautiful, neat little sort of talky, lyricy things. And I think tremendous lyrics. Um, this is a particular, particular favourite of mine. I think it's from the correct use of soap, Sweetheart Contract. freaking band and their debut is magnificent real life we delve into it between 11 o'clock and 12 very good evening everybody it's 10 o'clock no spoilers during the program on uh sports results but top of the news you'll get it